So, I feel as if, while I've been preparing this week, I've been thinking that this talk is kind of Magi 2, you know, as in film 2. I really love Paddington 2. You know, they don't always work, do they? But this one's going to work, Magi 2, because at the carol services, morning and evening, um, we shared about the wise men, the Magi, and... Uh, but really the focus was on the impetus for the journey and the journey itself. And, you know, there's a sense in which we left the wise men at the stable door, as it were. Although it turns out not the stable door. Okay, so here we go. Magi 2, but really it should be bow down and worship. And I'm going to read again the account. Um, but today I'm going to read it a bit interactively. Okay, so I'm not going to read it straight through. I'm going to pause and... Oh, what's going on here? So we're in Matthew chapter 2 and starting at verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now that is a very important sentence. It very firmly and clearly places Jesus in a place and at a particular time in history. And Matthew seems very specific that he wants us to get that. He was born here at this time. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Now, wise men there is not in capital letters. It's not their title. They're just men who are wise, considered wise. They arrived. They were men of particular status, very clearly, particular wealth, particular authority. And their arrival in Jerusalem was very definitely noted. They came asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now that verse is dynamite. These men are in Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish world, and they're asking, where is the king of the Jews? They're asking that in the very place where the current king of the Jews, albeit a puppet one, under Roman rule, is clinging on to power for dear life. It's a, very, uh, it, it's a very outrageous thing to ask. They had a big nerve to ask that question in Jerusalem at this time. And then they say, in the capital of the Jewish people, they say, we have come to worship him. We've come to worship him? That is absolute blasphemy to Jewish people. Only God is to be worshipped. You've come to worship a king. So this sentence is dynamite, quite honestly. That verse is dynamite. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. Well, that's hardly surprising. As was everyone in Jerusalem. I can't help thinking that the everyone there was probably everyone who was anyone. But anyway... He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, now listen carefully to what he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? 
So he didn't use that King of the Jews title. No, he said, where is the Messiah to be born? So in Herod's Jewish mind, there is a direct link between what these foreigners have asked and the prophecies that he knows are there somewhere, even if he doesn't know them very well, he's got to send for the professionals. There's something about Messiah. We're all looking for Messiah. There's a direct link in his mind between what these men have asked for and their Jewish prophecies. And here we get back to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. This was Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be, called, will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting. I bet he did. With the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can worship him too. So what is Herod saying here? He's a Jew. He only worships Yahweh. But he's saying something to these wise men about worship. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. You get the feeling they didn't get much joy in their interviews with Herod. That was probably quite tricky meetings, I imagine. And they didn't have to search Bethlehem, like Herod suggested. The star did the job. It took them to exactly where Jesus was. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So, as far as I can tell, scholars, or I've read about, scholars have searched long and hard to find the reasons why astronomers thought a star indicated specifically a king of the Jews. Why would they think that? Apparently, one of the most plausible ideas is that there is a record around these times of Jupiter and Saturn being in conjunction. Jupiter was, in the ancient world, thought to indicate a king, and Saturn was apparently always associated with the Jews. So anyway, the Magi followed this star, as we've talked about last time, and they, but they got diverted, didn't they? They didn't go straight to Bethlehem. They got diverted and they went to Jerusalem. And I just really think, as I dwelt on this, it's quite interesting. I think there are two significant things for me that I can see through this decision that they made. 
So one thing, it indicates to me that the Magi were really on a journey and not just a physical one. It's not like they got a definite message and boom, they went straight for it, as if they were totally clear, it was totally clear and transparent. No, they got a bit lost, certainly other times maybe, but certainly at this point they ended up in Jerusalem and you can sort of feel, yeah, they're just taking a step of faith at a time. You know, it's an exploration in faith. They're not absolutely certain at this point. They're sincerely seeking and we might say with hindsight it looks like this was a bit of a diversion. There's a kind of authenticity in that for me. That's kind of what it's like when we go seeking God. It's not always crystal clear and a really straight line. And the second thing which came to me, uh, which follows on from that, that it shows that they certainly didn't expect to find the king of the Jews in an ordinary house with working class parents. You know, if they'd kind of made a list when they saw the star, when they were on their journey, like, where do you think he's going to be then? Well, probably it seems Jerusalem was at the top. If we're looking for the king of the Jews, that's where we need to go. I'm not quite sure where in the list working class home with, with working class parents would be. And, and again, so they're going to be surprised. And this is where we come to this idea of epiphany. This season in, in the Church of England, especially in other churches, the season after Christmas is definitely called Epiphany, and it tends to focus on these wise men. It means the revealing. And you could think that Magi were people who were having sort of little epiphanies all along, starting with the star, maybe. Um, but the first part, it feels to me, of the, one of the major epiphanies, one of the major revelations that they had was that they expect what their expectations were and they did not expect Jesus to be born, as I said, in the place where he was. It turns out that instead of in a palace setting, in the capital city, Jesus was born in the midst of his people. And this is where this epiphany really happened for the Magi. They had been faithfully journeying, seeking for... The king of the Jews, not quite sure, really, not quite sure. But when they find him, they have this moment, this absolute revelation. They go into the house and they bow down and they worship. And without any kind of hesitation, they offer gifts, which are gifts considered appropriate for kings and even gods. They didn't stop at that point on the threshold and think, well, hang on a minute, do you think we've really got this right? Let's get our calculations out again. Where's that star? No, at that moment, when that came, that was a complete revelation, an epiphany. Now, we all, we kind of know, know what this means, don't we? We all have moments when we suddenly understand something. Or we suddenly become aware of something that somehow escaped us before. You know, why didn't I realise that before? I sometimes think, I sometimes pray, God, how did I get to this age where, and I only now really get that. You know, it, and some, there are some we could share if we sat around. 
perhaps if we thought about it, times in our lives, especially in our, in our faith journey, when there have been moments when it's like, wow, yeah, that's a real epiphany for me, and now I'm going to move on in a, in a different direction, perhaps. We understand what that means, a light bulb moment. Now, that happened very significantly for the Magi. After all their wandering and wondering, they suddenly realised that here, in this ordinary house, far away from the seat of earthly power, is the king deserving of their gifts and their worship. There's a spontaneity about it, isn't there? They bowed down and worshipped. No uncertainty now. After all this time, they just know it's revealed to them. They have found the king of the Jews. I bet this was the most exciting moment of their lives. I bet they talked about it when they were old. Now, the King of the Jews, that is an interesting title that the Magi use. And Matthew records it for a reason. Each of the Gospel writers uh, write for a particular reason. They have a particular focus. So you have some events and stories that are repeated in some of the Gospels, and you get some things that are just in one Gospel. And it depends what that particular writer is what their overall message is, you might say, as to what they chose to put into their Gospels. You know, we've all had that famous verse from John who says, many other things happened. Jesus did many other things, but I've chosen these so that you may believe. Well, Matthew has a particular focus in his Gospel. And one of the messages he really wants to get over in the whole of his gospel is that Jesus is destined to be not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the whole world. He's going to end his gospel with the great commission to tell the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And really interesting, the next time this title, the king of the Jews, is used, is used by Pilate. And he puts it above the cross in mockery. And it's really fascinating and beautiful that in that terrible setting, another epiphany happens. And I want to quote Tom Wright here in speaking of the moment that Jesus gives up his life under that title, the King of the Jews, the Magi's title. And this is what he says. At that moment, instead of a bright star, there is an unearthly darkness out of which we hear a single Gentile voice saying, yes, he really was God's son. So can you see that thread that comes from the beginning of Matthew's gospel all the way through to the Roman soldier, and then out into the whole world as the disciples take the news of who Jesus really is, not just the king of the Jews that he's labelled with, but what he has actually accomplished. 
So the Magi are part of a small group of people, Mary and Joseph and, and, uh, and just a few others, to whom the truth about who Jesus is, is revealed when he is still just a baby. And from then on, the Gospels are full of these epiphany moments that lots of different people have. Because Jesus came to reveal himself and also, therefore, to reveal God. And we see all through the Gospels that what happened to the Magi happens to many other people who have this revelation and then they worship. That's what obviously follows on. So first of all, in John chapter 1, I'm just picking out a couple. In John chapter 1, uh, this is John the Baptist. And I'm reading from verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. John had that moment, that epiphany. He later died a martyr's death, but not before he confirmed that he hadn't been imagining things and that his epiphany regarding who Jesus was actually was revealed truth. And then we have um, the disciples of John at a wedding. Jesus and his disciples at a wedding in, in chapter 2 of John. And, you know, he changes the water into wine. And at the end of that, I'm just going to read verse 11. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It feels like Jesus was at a wedding. Many people saw that water had been turned into wine. Some people hadn't been aware of it, but some people saw it. Epiphany moments are available. It feels like it was just the disciples who had that. They saw, and what it was an epiphany moment for them. They believed in him. Jesus needed his disciples to really know who he was. He needed them to know that by revelation, because they were going to be the ones who were going to stand with him. It's, you know, I don't know if you've been in situations in life where it's surprisingly easy to find other plausible explanations when actually it's God at work. We need to be open, don't we? If it's God at work, we need to see it. 
Um, and then I just the last one I wanted to just touch on is in Matthew chapter 16, where we have Peter specifically um, declaring what he has, what has been revealed to him. It's verse 15. Um, so I'll, actually, I'll read from I'll read from verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's Jesus asking his disciples. Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. So there's a good contrast in that passage. Who do people say? Oh, well, some people think this, some people think that. Human ideas. But Peter says, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, that's revelation, that's epiphany, that's how you know that. I feel that what the Magi teach us supremely is that the only appropriate response to the epiphany that Jesus is God is to bow down and worship, to bring him the best gifts we can. Everything we are and everything we have. I wonder if you noticed that for the Magi, their worship flowed out into their consequent actions and decisions. They went back to their own country by a different route. They defied the earthly authority of Herod. And I know that we say this often, but we need to repeat it. Our worship isn't limited to being in church singing worship songs. True worship flows through everything we do and everywhere we go how we conduct our relationships, and what we do when life is difficult. This is all worship. I bet the, I bet the Magi were looking over their shoulders, weren't you? Going along on their camels. Is anybody coming? I mean, this was risky what they were doing, defying Herod in his own country. Whew, I bet it was a relief when they got across the border, don't you? I bet they had some people at the back with swords. You know, I wonder if you, like me, have been a bit, I don't know what word to use, perplexed, amazed, kind of like really asking questions, by the spectacle that played out kind of like last week and the beginning of this week, as hundreds and thousands of people worshipped Pele. What did you think about that? I actually heard a BBC reporter I assume he was saying what was being said in Brazil. He said that what was being said was that um, Pele has not left us. He will be able to watch over us for eternity. <laughs> Did you hear that? Because I think he's going to be buried somewhere where he's going to be, um, yeah. It's just quite incredible, isn't it, really? 
You know, it has been said, of course, that man is made to worship. And that if we don't worship God, then we construct our own gods. Certainly, it seemed to me that the Pele phenomenon certainly would support that view. Of course, a sceptical atheist will say, not me. I don't worship anything. I'm master of my own fate. I bow down to no one. Well, I think this morning, Matthew wants you and me to hear that Jesus came as God incarnate to dwell among us, Emmanuel, and to reveal God to us so that we might bow down and worship rightly. And in doing so, become the truest, best humans that we were created to be. In relationship with our creator, loved and accepted by him because of the sacrifice of Jesus (coughs) at the cross. I read this this week and I thought I'd finish by reading it to you. It's a challenge. Come to him, to Jesus, to God, by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. Bow down and worship him. <laughs>